Okay, we're reading from John 3, verses 1 to 21. This is the New International Version, if you're reading along in the Pew Bibles or indeed on the overhead. Now, there was a Pharisee, a a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his own one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Well, thank you. And I forgot to say to all visitors, welcome on uh, Grandparents Sunday. It's wonderful that you're here. My name's Chris, if you don't know me. I'm new up here. G'day. (laughs) It's great to see you. Um, And thank you, Mark, for the reading. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, this is uh, in one way a well-known passage to people who've been around churches and the Bible for years, but maybe for people here it's new. And even if it's familiar, we pray, God, that you'd open our eyes And you'd help us all to progress in our understanding of you and in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most attractive things about Jesus to Australians is how he dresses down the religious leaders of his day. But I wonder what would happen if a decent religious expert came and met Jesus. So over the last three weeks, we've been looking at what happens when Jesus meets a foreign woman, a royal official, a blind beggar, And last week, a disabled larrikin. (laughs) Today, 
what happens when Jesus meets a religious expert? Now, maybe you're not really interested in this. Maybe you're a bit fed up with religious experts, especially after the Royal Commission. Uh, Australians can be excused for being a tad cynical about those people. Religious experts have lost their credibility. And in saying this, I realise I wear the badge, right, of religious expert. But, you know, it would be intriguing, wouldn't it, to see what Jesus said to a real expert. And in fact, it might be relevant to us because, I mean, all of us wonder about the questions in life, don't we? You know, what happens after we die? Um, How did we get here in the first place? What's the point of it all? Is there anyone out there? And if there is, what, what makes for an upright life? These are all questions. Religious experts are meant to know the answers. Wouldn't it be interesting to be a fly on the wall listening in to that sort of conversation? Well, that is exactly what we're offered here in what we've just heard. Jesus meets Nicodemus. Please have your Bibles open if you've got them. Um, John chapter 3. Nicodemus was the top religious expert at that time in the world. Now, why do I say this? First of all, he's Jewish, meaning that he belonged to the nation where God personally revealed himself, made himself known in word and in deed. No other nation had this. He's got the dibs on knowledge about God. More than that, he was a leading Jew. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. He would have known God's laws inside out. More than that, he was elderly. He had the maturity of years, years of reflecting on God's word. Added to that, he was no fake. He was a Pharisee. Normally, we think that Pharisees in the Bible are villains like you know Dracula or something, and they go around in flowing black cloaks. Pharisees were the true believers. They weren't professionals, they were lay people. And yet they were known for their belief and for taking obedience to God seriously. They believed the scriptures. Other people didn't, they did. And topping all this, he was the top Jewish teacher. In verse 10, Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher. Literally, you are the teacher of Israel. So here we have Nicodemus arguably the most informed religious man in the world at that time. So it might surprise us that when he meets Jesus, the first thing that happens is Jesus blindsides him. So Nicodemus opens, sounding very respectful, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. So he's polite, sounds respectful, even positive. And then Jesus delivers him a blindside smackdown. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, before we ask what this even means, why on earth would Jesus speak like this? Well, we're giving a, given a hint. John, who writes this, uh, adds the little remark that Nicodemus had come to Jesus at night. Now, you have to understand Much of what John writes has layers. Remember Shrek, Onion Boy? Onions have layers, you know. Um, Like this. John says Nicodemus comes at night, which means first layer, the sun's gone down. (laughs) Second layer, Nicodemus comes at night because he's afraid of being seen talking to Jesus in the daytime. He's afraid. Third layer, it's a comment on Nicodemus' spiritual condition. You read ahead to verse 19, and darkness means to love what is evil. 
So what's the verdict on the man who's arguably the most informed religious expert in the world at that time? What's Jesus' verdict? You're in darkness. That's why Jesus blindsides him. Nicodemus sounded generous, generous and respectful. The truth is, if you look, he's come to Jesus, he's evaluated him, he's measured Jesus up according to his grid to see if Jesus fits, and then he's pronounced that we, the Sanhedrin, know that Jesus truly is from God, as if their pronouncement somehow validates Jesus. Well, if you're going to make that sort of announcement, what does it think about who you think you are, that you could validate Jesus? Nicodemus may sound open and objective, but at this stage he's not. You see, zoom back from this scene. Nicodemus knew about Jesus' miracles. He'd said it himself. And being a Pharisee, he had the key to make sense of those miracles, the scriptures. He had what was needed to move beyond knowledge about the miracles to faith. But he hadn't moved there. For all of his knowledge, Jesus says in verse 10, you are the teacher of Israel and you don't even understand what I'm saying. He didn't move to faith because he couldn't, because he was blind spiritually and he, being a religious expert, isn't that telling. Most of us will know someone who's religious Um, a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Hindu, a Jew, Christian, Um, an atheist. I say atheist because no atheist is omniscient and it takes a lot of faith to say there is no God. Right? Now, they may be lovely people and maybe the person you know is an expert, but probably they knew less than what Nicodemus knew and from John and Jesus' assessment of Nicodemus, it's likely... Therefore, that in reality, they're in darkness. Is that too harsh? Listen to Jesus' blowtorch assessment of us. Verse 3, he says, I tell you the truth, no one can even see the kingdom of God unless he is born again or born from above. No one, that includes us. Knowledge is not enough. We must be born again. And he impresses on us this point. Because only someone who's supernaturally reborn, whatever that means, will have the Spirit of God and you need the Spirit of God to enter or to see the kingdom of God. You can't unless you're born again, born of the Spirit. uh, Jesus says it again in verse 5, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the Spirit that is born again. Now maybe we wonder what he means, but we get the gist. He's saying no one is naturally born a member of the kingdom of God. No one. We we don't naturally belong there. Who we are in our natural selves is so alien to the kingdom of God, we won't even see the kingdom of God unless we're somehow supernaturally born again, reborn. Like Neo in the Matrix. Do you remember the Matrix? Okay. There's Keanu Reeves being cool, going to nightclubs. He thinks he's alive. He's kidding himself because in reality, he's an adult embryo in an amniotic sac. He's been stockpiled as future food for machines until he swallows the red pill and he gets ripped out of his amniotic womb tomb and he gets reborn and given new life. Now, this is a bit of a cult movie now. You know, it's, it's old. But it's a powerful illustration of rebirth. 
Not from the Bible, (laughs) but it illustrates the need Jesus sledgehammers Nicodemus with. Something radical needs to happen to us. Totally radical. A new birth. The better description comes for us in the words of the prophet Ezekiel. He was one of the major prophets of God to the Jewish people in the Old Testament times. Ezekiel relayed to the Jewish people a promise of God where God describes this rebirth in the same terms that Jesus used, water and spirit. In Ezekiel, God promised the day will come when I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. That's what Jesus is describing. God cleansing us from our sin, God giving us a new heart of flesh and putting a new spirit in us that longs to live for him and to obey him. That is what being born again means. And according to Jesus, we can have all the knowledge of, about God in the world, but without being reborn from above, not only won't we, will we not enter the kingdom of God, we won't even see it. We'll live our lives, but the great spiritual reality to which God is driving all history towards, the coming of the kingdom of God, we won't see it. We just won't see it in our life. We'll live our lives trying to make the best meaning of it we can, but in the end, we're going to die. And if what Jesus says is true, nothing in us will endure to eternal life. Everything we've lived for, including ourselves, we're going to perish. The big question, therefore, is how do people become born again? (laughs) How do we get this new spirit, this new cleansing? Uh, My mother tells the story. Uh, she, She and Dad used to drop us off to Sunday school as kids. And um, she wasn't very happy. One day, apparently, uh, she was holding me. I was a little, little boy holding her hand at the edge of a road and I went to step out. She yanked me back. And apparently, I said to her, don't worry, if I get killed, I could just go up into your tummy and be born again. Because I'd learnt that at Sunday school. She wasn't very impressed with that, anyway. <laughs> How do people get born again? Right? How do we get this new spirit, this new spiritual cleansing? We can't make it happen by ourselves. That's the first point. Jesus says the wind blows wherever it pleases. In other words, we can see the wind, or at least we can see the effects of wind. We can see the leaves blowing, the dust flying, the trees bending. The wind itself is invisible, but we know it's real, right? Same with the spirit. You know that the spirit is real because you've met people who really do seem to know God and walk with him. What's happened to them? Something's happened. Just as we can't make the wind start blowing, neither can we make the spirit come upon us by singing or chanting or jumping through religious hoops. Yesterday I was talking to a guy who for years had come to church, Trinity Church, but he wasn't changed Because God hadn't given him the spirit. He only realised this after that happened. He'd been a churchgoer for years. He wasn't alive to God. How? If each of us needs to be born again, born of the spirit, how does it happen? Well, the answer is we can't do it, but Jesus enables it to happen. You see, 
he's the one from heaven who explains to us what we need to know. You see, he moves from speaking of birth and wind and water and spirit to speak suddenly of the cross and then of eternal life for all who believe. And this clears away the confusion. Nicodemus presumed to speak about heavenly things, but Jesus, the son who came from heaven, he really can speak with authority about heavenly things. And yet the surprise is that when he wants to speak and explain this being born again thing, what he speaks about is the cross. Now we may not immediately understand everything he's saying, but what's clear from the conversation uh, that we see is that this is the answer to how someone becomes born again. This is the answer of how someone gets cleansed from their sin. This is how a person gains eternal life. And there is nothing, nothing more important in life to understand than this. So Jesus tells us about the cross and he says three things. First of all, ready? People need to look in faith to the Son of Man, the agent of judgment raised up on the pole. Secondly, behind this bizarre method of salvation is the deep, deep love of God. Third, unless we believe in the Son crucified for us, we will perish. Firstly, Jesus explains the cross by going into a classic story of judgment from Israel's history. Now, if we were to rewind back in our Bible history to a bit just after the Exodus story, remember Moses and the Israelites who come out of Egypt? Okay, if we rewind to just after that dramatic rescue of God's people from slavery in Egypt with the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, okay, what happened after that was the, the Israelites spent 40 years of wandering in the Sinai Desert. And during that time, the Israelites very quickly became ungrateful. And they developed a national trait as God grumblers. A trait not unknown to we Australians, you have to to admit. As punishment, the Lord sent venomous snakes amongst them so that many people died. And then the Israelites begged for the Lord to take the snakes away. But instead of immediately answering that prayer, the Lord said to Moses, their leader, make a snake and put it up on a pole and anyone who is bitten to it, bitten, sorry, can look, look at it and live. Okay, that's the snake on the pole, the symbol of um, medicine, right? It comes from this story. So we read, Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole and when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. It was as simple as that. All you had to do was to believe God's word and then you who were otherwise dead, you looked to this unlikely provision from God and you were saved. You lived. It was totally effective. It made no distinction between those who were deserving and those who weren't. All it took was belief in what God said about this unlikely, surprising figure raised up high. Now, why the snake? Okay, when we hear snake in the Bible, where do we go to? Satan in the Garden of Eden, right? The serpent. The snake here is not a symbol of Satan. In this story, the bronze snake symbolized, of course, the live snakes who were God's agents of judgment. So here the snake on the pole symbolizes the agent of God's judgment in his judgment of sin. 
You might say the snake is a symbol of God's wrath, God's anger against sin. And the puzzle here is that when you look at this symbol of judgment, this symbol of God's anger against sin, you're saved. Now, how does this explain the cross? (laughs) Jesus said... Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, the agent of God's wrath and judgment, so the Son of Man, and now Jesus is referring to himself, he's using a title which he used to describe himself in his role as judge on the day when Jesus, the Son of Man, will judge every person who has ever lived for what they've done with their lives. Jesus said in Matthew 25, the Son of Man will come in his glory and will sit on his throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats, people to his right, people to his left. This is a staggering picture. It's relevant to everyone. It's personal to us because we're all going to be there. Okay. Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up That snake in the desert, and the snakes were God's agent of judgment against the Israelites, so the Son of Man, the agent of God's wrath and judgment against us, must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him, who looks to him in faith, may have eternal life. You become born again by looking in faith at God's agent of judgment lifted up. In one sense, it's totally bizarre, isn't it? This smacks of an angry God. But then Jesus explains the second point, that behind this bizarre provision stands not God's anger, but his deep, determined love. He explains. You see, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Yes, God's anger is against sin and sinners, but at the same time stands God's immense and deep and personal love for every person who would perish. And the enormity of that love is found in the biggest word in John 3.16. What's the biggest word? World. Eternal. Big words, aren't they? No, the biggest word is the smallest one. So... God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You know, Nicodemus knew a lot about God. He would have read of God's love. But how could he put that together with God's anger against sin? How much did God really love him in the final analysis? When you stop and think in the privacy of your own mind in a quiet moment, how much does God really love you? Does he love you just a bit? Does he just tolerate you? You know, does he... He'd really rather not be bothered. He loves you more than you can understand. Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his one and only son. When God had the Son of Man lifted up on a pole for us to look at and be saved, that Son of Man, who was at the same time the agent of judgment against us, was his one and only son. That agent of judgment was not an image made out of bronze. It was a person. It was his son. And that act of raising up his son on the cross was not a costless intervention that God just did willy-nilly. It was a gift of enormous cost. And the motivation behind that gift was not 
out-of-control anger and rage and barbarism, but love, a deep, deep love full of grit and tears and determination. God was giving him for us because he loved us. And in, in this, our sin is not just cleansed, but our hearts are changed. You see, because how could you not want to live for a God of such immense love? How could you not want to give your life to him? You know, to know that this happened and not to respond in trust is just so, so inadequate. You might say, how how can I trust someone who I don't know is on my side? We know that he's on our side because he's revealed it. His core motivation in sending his son for us was not hatred or anger, but love. He's on our side. And when God opens your eyes to this because Jesus explains it to you and your eyes pop open and the penny drops and you get it, that God is real and his love for you is immense and deep and costly and he wants you, he wants you so much. When you realize this revelation, it requires trust, doesn't it? I mean, that's the only thing to say, you've got me, I believe in you. I know your attitude towards me is that of love. And what you did for me was so kind and it was so costly and it was so precious. I'm I'm not going to just nod my head and walk away. I'm going to trust in your son. I don't just believe things about him anymore. I believe in him. Personally. Jesus says, do that, and the gift is yours, eternal life. Trust in the Son, you're born again. Trust in the Son, God washes you clean. Trust in the Son, God gives you his spirit. Trust in the Son, you've entered the kingdom of God. That was God's goal all along, that Christ be totally effective as our saviour. Jesus said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That is what is unique about Christ. No other religion offers a saviour, not not one. But the saviour God sends in Christ is totally effective. We don't need anyone more than him. He's totally sufficient to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. But there's a flip side. The flip side is that unless people believe in the son crucified for them, there is actually there is no hope for them. That's the third point about the cross that Jesus teaches. That's so unique is God's son as a saviour. There's no equivalent offered anywhere else. So effective is he as a saviour. His salvation on the cross was complete. Unless you or I look to Christ crucified in faith, we will certainly perish. And that is why, lastly, God's Son must be believed in by everyone. And that's something each of us needs to grasp for ourselves and for those we know and love. You see, what happens to someone who hasn't believed in Jesus? Undoubtedly, lots of people are good, (laughs) but don't believe in Jesus. Nicodemus, we don't know what he was like, but probably he was a lovely, decent man. We all know good people. It's not that they reject Jesus, they're just not accepting him, is what they say. They'll be okay, won't they? No. Don't take my word for it, take Jesus' word for it. Jesus, listen to what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that those who are good 
will not perish. He says so, so that those who believe will not perish. It's not about being good or not good, worthy or unworthy. It's about whether you believe in the Son or not. And notice the default position for, uh, for those who don't believe is perishing. Verse 18 is even more clear. Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now, why is he so stark? Jesus said it. He alone is the saviour for the world. That's why he's so stark. You know, most people have heard of the Titanic, the unsinkable ship, which we know went down in the North Atlantic on its maiden voyage from Southampton to New York in 1911. Imagine that everyone in the world is on the Titanic and it hits the iceberg and there's water flooding in and the lifeboats are inadequate and it's going down. And even those who make it to the lifeboats, they are in freezing waters, in freezing temperatures in the North Atlantic. They are not going to last long without help. That is the spiritual condition of every person in the world. From your lovely grandma or grandpa to your worst pedophile. Whether they're in the lifeboats or in the ship or in the water, they've only got hours, minutes left in the scheme of eternity. And then comes Arthur Henry Rostrum. Now, he was the captain of the Carpathia, okay? The only captain who was responsive to come to the aid of the survivors in time. There was another ship nearby, but that captain kept sailing away, okay? Arthur was 58 miles away and he had to run the gauntlet of icebergs in the middle of the night to try and get there in time. But at risk to his own life and the life of his crew, he did it. Okay, still the survivors had to bob around for four hours before help came. Imagine you've survived that long, you're in the boat and his ship pulls up beside you and a lifeline is thrown down to you, a ladder, and he's holding out his hand on the ladder. The difference between those who perish in the freezing waters and those who saved is whoever looks to him in faith and grabs his hand. And it's as simple as that. That's it. And that's why Jesus says you have to. He's the only one offering the hand. Being a religious expert loaded with knowledge isn't enough. We must be born again. How does it happen? We can't make it happen, but Jesus, he can open our eyes. He explains to us the cross. All we need to do is to look in faith to the Son of Man raised up and we will be saved. There's no need to fear an angry God, a judge at the end of time because the one who is the judge was the one who was raised up, who we look to in faith. There's no one else who's going to judge us. Eternal life is offered for all who look to him. Do it, you'll be born again. Do it, you'll receive eternal life. And behind that action is the deep, determined love of God for you and for me, despite how we've treated him. And Jesus says, unless we believe, we will perish. What's his point to Nicodemus? What's his point to us? Each of us must put our faith in Jesus, God's one and only son. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus' clarity. And Lord, we trust that you by your spirit have been working here this morning to open our eyes through Jesus' explanation of the cross so that we can be born again. And Lord, each of us now, we have a moment 
to come before you and to put our trust in you. Father, thank you for your promise. That all who believe in the Son will not perish, but have eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.